But we wanted to continue going through, loosely, uh, Zach Keel's book, The Unfolding Word, and we're kind of uh, in Exodus, and wanted to talk in particular about uh, the, the treaties and how treaties are put together and the covenant, the Mosaic covenant in particular, that um, is different than the Abrahamic, it's different than the Davidic, it's different than the one with Adam, and we want to note there are some similarities between them, but also some differences. And in particular, you remember the whole theme that we're talking about when we're looking at the scripture is that there's a story from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, about the promised seed, and that God wants to create both a holy people and a holy place. And if Adam would have obeyed in the garden, there would have been a holy place and a holy people. It would have been uh, led into uh, glory, but he got kicked out of the place, and the people became unholy, and God immediately made a promise uh, that he was going to still accomplish what he had set out to accomplish, uh, but through various means and through various administration, all of it coming ultimately through that one seed. And so we're tracing that seed. And what we want to look at today is this whole idea of treaties or covenants, because they're a little bit uh, removed from us. Zach Keel in his book talked about when we go to a different country, sometimes that we end up with culture shock, right? There's different customs, there's different languages, there's different diets, different habits, different holidays, different languages, different laws, different politics. So today you could go to many different countries that would seem very different from what you're used to here, but imagine us now going back centuries and centuries to try to figure out, hey, what's going on with these? And so we recognize that they're difficult to understand because we recognize the players that are involved in them, like we've all heard of Moses, but it might be helpful for, to us to understand, well, what is the context in which a treaty comes about, or what does a treaty look like? And we actually have some source reference as well. There are quite a few treaties in the ancient Near East that we still have access to, the Code of Hammurabi, various Hittite treaties, Syrian treaties, Neo-Assyrian treaties, and they all have kind of a basic structure. There's like a preamble saying what this is going to be about, a prologue, what has happened thus far, stipulations, if you do X, Y will happen, if, if, you do, um, if you do A, B will happen, if you do C, D will happen, and then a deposit, a reading, you're supposed to keep it and put it somewhere and then read it on a regular basis, who are the witnesses to the treaty, and then what are the blessings or the curses. And uh, as he, if you read uh, Reverend Keel's book, he gives quite a few examples of those uh, in the ancient Near East. And they were binding. There were two types of treaties in general. One of them was made between two either people groups or kingdoms that were of relative same size and strength, and that was called a parity agreement. You're basically just making some kind of contract between these two, and there's an equality uh, between them. And then there's one that's called a suzerain vassal, where a greater king is saying to the lesser king <laughs> what's going to happen. Um, it's not a, uh, a contract among equals. One is clearly uh, dominant over the other. But what's interesting, it's in that context that God reveals his covenant with the people of Israel at Sinai. So it wasn't something that they weren't familiar with. They're swimming in this culture. They're swimming in this language uh, by their neighbors and the areas around them. And so we want to recognize that though there are some similarities between a Hittite treaty, for example, and the scriptural treaty, uh, or the Mosaic uh, treaty, there are differences as well. First, uh, Moses is not between human kings or empires, but it's, but it's between God and his people. So it's not just two kings, two human kings. Also, 
these would constantly invoke all the gods that they knew of, which could be anywhere from 10 to hundreds of, you know, just invoking all kinds of gods, whereas the Mosaic is just saying there's one God, Yahweh, and he's the one who is the suzerain, really, in the treaty, and he's the one giving us uh, this treaty. And if you remember, we said that this is really where we kind of get to know who Yahweh is, is uh, in the first five books of the Bible. And it's saying that not only is, is he the one who released us uh, from Egypt, he's the one who created us to begin with. And so we find that this, uh, this covenant is between Yahweh and his people. And also the Mosaic is not merely political. Like sometimes when we think of treaties, we just think of them as a political arrangement. Um, even in the Hittite treaties, for instance, much more is men. It's their whole life live together. The, the metaphors that are often used for treaties in Scripture are father and son, lord and servant, God and people, husband and wife. They're meant to be beautiful. They're meant to be loving. They're meant to be mutually uh, lovely and beneficial in one way or another. So it's not just a political arrangement where here, here are the laws and I have nothing to do with you. It's just kind of dry and cold. Think of Psalm 23, for instance, right? The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want he makes us to lie down in green pastures. Goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our life. Right? This is a good king, a good shepherd, a, one who cares for us and loves us and longs to be with us. And so uh, it's not just a list of do's and don'ts or just a list of the terms. It's also trying to incorporate that this is communal, that this is personal, that this is relational, that this is ongoing, that this is loving. And so we see that uh, in, the, in the covenants as well. And so we want to notice this, this example. If you want to turn your Bibles to Exodus, chapter 20. We see all these different elements of an ancient Near East treaty in the treaty at Sinai. We see a preamble, if you would look at uh, the Ten Commandments, verses 20, verse 1, it says, and God spoke all these words, saying, right, here's the preamble, God spoke all of these things, and then the historical prologue could be summarized real briefly, is in verse 2, I am the Lord your God, right, I am Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So there's some history here. <laughs> Right? I mean, you could unpack all of what that meant. They were slaves for 400 plus years. The God visited all, all the, they, they were slaves for 400 years. God visited all the plagues on Egypt. He brought them out. I mean, this is saying, who are the parties of this treaty? Who is here? Who is the one who has a right to make this treaty? It's him. It's the one who rescued us, the one who saved us, the one who showed us mercy, uh, the one who redeemed us. You could back up all the way if you wanted to, for instance, to... Uh, Chapter 19, starting in verse 4. Well, actually, just start at 19. It says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness at Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountains while Moses went up to God. The Lord called out, called out to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me on and on. Right? You can get this historical prologue of who this is and what he's done and by what authority he has and why we should call upon him and trust him and obey him and do all of these things. Make sense? Okay. And then there's all the stipulations. What are the terms of the covenant? Briefly summarized, we could say they're the Ten Commandments. But Exodus goes on and adds a lot more to that. There's a lot more to the Mosaic economy than the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments for sure, right? Here, here are the list of the things that, that you need uh, to do. And then there's always a place for it to be deposited and for it to be read. And if you remember, where did the uh, covenant that God made with Israel, where was it put? In the Ark of the... Boy, tough one, right? <laughs> but it's interesting to remember what sits on top of the ark, right? Is a mercy seat, right? It should tell us something that we recognize that it's not even going to be through the works of the law that all of this is going to come about. Even from the beginning, it's kind of telling us we need to be aware. Mercy is going to be needed. It's not a judgment seat that sits on there. It's a mercy seat. And the law is encased and encompassed in, or the covenant is encased and encompassed in, the way that God had revealed himself to Moses as one who's merciful and slow to anger and abounding in love and gracious and merciful. Because as we go on, we're going to find that it's not through the law that they're going to be able to have salvation. As a matter of fact, the Mosaic isn't even about salvation. It's about staying in the land. It's about Uh, the holiness of the people and staying in the land. It's not about salvation. The Mosaic economy didn't come along and say, if you do these things, you will have salvation. The very fact that he gave them all of these sin offerings and all of these rituals and all of these things and has a mercy seat shows us they recognized or should recognize this isn't how we maintain salvation. This is how we stay in the promised land. A different thing. Is Is that clear? Okay. And then there are witnesses to the covenant. Uh, Exodus 24.4 will say that. And then blessings and cursings for the covenant. So if you remember in the Mosaic, it was ratified several times. One of the most significant was when the people of God, if you remember, stood on two different mountains. And uh, when the, it was, uh, the terms of the covenant were, were read, they said, all this we will do, right? And blood was sprinkled on them. <laughs> in other words, they're saying, if we don't fulfill... All of the terms of the covenant, then let the blood of the covenant be on us, which is really significant. This is, again, how in one way it's different from Abraham, which we'll look at in a minute. But we need to recognize that the people are saying, they're raising their hand, they're saying, all this we will do. It's a, they're agreeing to this covenant uh, with the Lord. And so all of that is just meant to show, hey, this is the context of it. You can see this reiterated in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, kind of even Uh, goes through these same patterns and you just see this ancient Near Eastern treaty idea come apart, come come about, it's binding, saying who's involved in it, what they've done, what the nature of the contract is. It's supposed to be read and remembered and believed. Who are the witnesses to it and what happens if you obey it and what happens if you break it? Simple enough. I'm oversimplifying it, but What's interesting is uh, one of my professors used to talk about that this is, there, there's planned obsolescence in the Mosaic economy because it's, 
in one way because it's going to be fulfilled in Christ, but in another because even at the time that they're making, God is making the covenant with them, they're breaking the covenant. And they know that this isn't going to last forever. And that there's something beyond and underneath that that is going to carry them, carry them through ultimately, which is the covenant made uh, to Abraham. And so how do we know? What are some of the ways that we would know about planned obsolescence? I wrote a, quite a lengthy paragraph in your notes from Reverend Keel's book. He summarizes it really well. He says, Yet while Israel is commanded to choose life by doing all that Yahweh has commanded, she also gets notification that she will fail. In addition to her own past idolatries, Yahweh tells Israel that she will fail in the end. In Deuteronomy 4, Yahweh predicts that Israel will act corruptly, making idols for herself. He even calls heaven and earth as witness to the fact that Israel will soon perish from the land. She will not endure long, but Yahweh will scatter her uh, like chaff to the four winds of the nations. Israel's efforts to be holy is doomed to fail. In Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 2, Moses declares that the blessings and curses will come on Israel. She will be driven um, to the nations. The collapse also gets written into the grand song of Moses, the national anthem of Israel in Deuteronomy 32. Israel shall grow fat and lazy and forgetful. Her vine is the vine of Sodom. Yahweh's vengeance will reign from heaven and their day of calamity is near. And if Moses was not clear enough, Joshua frankly forecasts, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. He is jealous. His jealous holiness will consume them. That's harsh, but an important word for them to hear in terms of what are the purposes and the intentions of the Mosaic covenant. It was meant to be temporary. It was meant to be in place until the time of the promised seed, the coming one. And so many different things within the Mosaic economy help us understand that promised one when he comes. We get the sacrificial system. We get the priests. We get the Levites. We get the prophets. We get the king. We get all of that, which helps us understand more fully who Jesus is. And so underneath, if we drew a line... Like God made a covenant of grace with Abraham, and that's how everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, and then Christ comes. But before that is the Mosaic, which is built on the covenant of grace. We would say it's an administration of the covenant of grace, but it was meant to be temporary. It wasn't meant to be forever. And the scripture even tells us that. And when you look at Galatians, in particular, Galatians 2, Galatians 3, and Galatians 4, it shows you that there's a difference between Mount Zion, the promise made to Abraham, and Mount Zion, uh, uh, Mount Sinai, sorry, the covenant that Israel made. We could say in short terms, right, there's a difference between a promise and the law, or the gospel and the law. But it would need more nuance than that, but in very broad terms. The Mosaic and the Abrahamic covenant are similar, but not identical. We also know that Israel didn't fulfill the terms of the covenant. How do, how do we know that from Scripture? Yeah. 
Yeah, they received curses and they were also kicked out of the land, right? And it says, God will vomit them out of the land. Again, it wasn't for salvation. But if they would have obeyed even relatively well, they probably would have been able to stay in the land and subdue it and to rule and reign. But even in the making of the covenant, while the making of the covenant was, they were making a golden calf. It's not like they kind of got a B or a B minus for a couple years. They got an F from the beginning. Um, And then it didn't get much better. There were times of relative obedience and peace, but overwhelmingly it was a failure on the part of Israel to do what they had committed to the Lord. And we see that over and over. And so the prophets are really covenant attorneys, if you think about it. They're prosecuting this case. You had said, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. You didn't do it. And now the curses come upon you for not doing it. What is your hope? Not to dig in and try harder, but he had made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The prophets always say, encourage the people to remember the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even encourage the Lord to remember the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because if it's going to be based on their obedience to the law, it's going to be a disaster. But we're going to find out that there is one who comes, who is obedient to the law, and who does all of these things, and who honors it, and who loves it, and fulfills it in every aspect. And so we see, it's really helpful for us to see the exacting nature of it and the difficulty of it to be able to see the beauty and the glory of Christ in terms of how perfectly he uh, fulfills it, how perfectly he fulfills it all. And so I want to be really clear before we look at some of these differences. The Mosaic economy is an administration of the covenant of grace. He starts off in Exodus 20 again by saying, I am Yahweh, right? I'm I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, to worship me, to be with me, to be in my presence, and to be a holy people. It is related to uh, the covenant of grace with Abraham, but it's not identical. There's both continuity and discontinuity between the two. And hear me on this, it's not meritorious for salvation, It was never meant to be, well, now, if you do this, you will be saved. Ever since the garden, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It becomes more clear as Scripture goes on. Abraham was justified by faith alone. All those who are sons and daughters of Abraham are justified in the same way by faith. So this didn't come along to say, hey, Moses was justified through faith, and now this group of people is going to be justified in terms of salvation through the law. It was ne- it's not communicating that in any way. Again, the entire sacrificial system should tell us that. The fact that the ark is sitting on, uh, again, uh, 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 underneath a mercy seat should tell us that. The only way of salvation is through mercy. But they would have been able to stay in the land. They would have been able to maintain and flourish in a relationship if they had obeyed the Lord. So you want to say that there's some, in some sense, a works principle there, right? If you do X, you will live. If you do Y, you will die. It's not identical to what happened with Adam because Adam was a sinless human being in whom God had made him upright and holy and true, and he could obey the thing, the terms of the covenant and the law. This is made with a fallen, sinful group of people. They're, they're very different in that way. So it's not like, oh, this is... Adam or the garden part two. It's not. 
Different covenant, different group of people, different situation. Adam was created in, in righteousness and holiness. This is already made with a fallen group of people who need a savior and have already been promised if they believe in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. And so the whole thing, the whole mosaic economy, reveals to us much about the Lord. It reveals his will. It reveals his character. It reveals what is needed to be in his presence. It reveals his justice. It reveals his holiness. It reveals his mercy. It tells us so much more. We know so much more about the Lord and about our salvation and about the ravages of the law and the sinfulness of humanity than by knowing about the Mosaic economy than we would by not. Also, one more thing I want to say about the planned obsolescence is there's some really wonderful passages in Scripture that tell us that this wasn't the end and that they were going to break it to begin with. So, for instance, in Deuteronomy 5, 2 through 3, it says, The Lord your God made a covenant with us at Horeb, not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with, with us who are here. So he's saying, Moses is saying, it's not the covenant that he made with Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob that we're talking about that we broke. Uh, we, we can't break the one with Abraham. It's, un, it's unbreakable, we'll find out. Because God alone took the oath. God alone was the one involved in that. Jeremiah 31, turn there for a minute if you would. All this, I'm just trying to show some of the differences between Abraham and Moses, and we'll get to a few more of them. But in theology, sometimes people collapse them, and that gets really confusing. And sometimes people separate them so much that they have nothing to do with one another. We want to be much more nuanced. It's not collapsing them, they're not identical, and they're not completely separated that they have nothing to do with one another. Look at uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. So he's saying that they broke which covenant? The one with Abraham or the one with Moses? Oh, yeah. So he's saying this, this is going to be different than that. This covenant you broke. And so then he says... Uh, My covenant that you broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Right? It's not on a tablet of stone anymore. It's on a heart. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor uh, and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Right? That's a great promise. Coming and saying, hey, this has been broken, but God's going to do something about it. Instead of writing the law on a tablet of stone, he's going to put it on our hearts. He's going to give us a new heart. Ezekiel 36 and Ezekiel 37 will say he's going to put his spirit within us. He's going to take away our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. He's going to cause us to walk in his statutes. He's going to cause us to obey him. He's going to cause us to love him. All of these things the Lord will do. And that's where some of the greatest distinctions between these two covenants come about. So with Abraham, 
we see the terms of the covenant are it being laid out in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. With Moses and the people, we see that in Exodus 20 and following in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. We also know that the mediator of the covenant with Abraham is Christ. The mediator in the Mosaic was Moses as he's pointing forward to Christ. As a matter of fact, when the people heard the law, they said, they recognized this is way too much for us to bear. They said, we want someone to stand in our stead. We want a substitute. Let's let him be Moses, right? Let him do this. And so Moses was the mediator of that covenant as it's pointing forward to Christ, but Christ alone is this mediator. Also, this one is unconditional. The Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. If you remember, in Genesis 15, when the Lord made the covenant with Abraham, he was asleep. And the, the, the animal parts were ripped apart, and God showed himself in a theophany walking between the animal parts, in essence saying, if this covenant isn't fulfilled, then let the cursings of the covenant come upon me. He was asleep. The people of Israel were wide awake. They were saying, all this we will do. And so it's unconditional versus conditional. The people would have stayed in if they obeyed, if they trusted the Lord, if they did what he said, if they uh, fulfilled the exacting details of the law. I do want to say, to be very clear, there is a condition in this covenant. We have to believe, right? We have to repent and believe. But we recognize that those are gifts. Everything that God commands in the law, he gives us in the gospel. So it is true, we do need to believe in order to be saved, but we recognize that faith itself is even a gift. Ephesians 2 couldn't make that more clear, other passages of scripture, but Ephesians 2 in particular. So it's unconditional. God is the one who made the covenant, God is the one who fulfills the covenant. It's also unilateral. God is the one who does it. This is bilateral. The people did something, God did something. There's that interaction between who's being faithful uh, to which part and how much of the covenant. In this covenant, right, Yahweh said, all this I will do. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will forgive you. I will, I will, I will, I will, over and over. In this one, you remember the people stood up and said, all this we will do. And the blood was sprinkled on them. Literally, there was blood on them saying, if we don't do this, then we deserve this. Let the blood fall upon us. There are blessings and curses in both of them. Blessings in the covenant of grace. Curses for any who reject. Any who reject the promises and spurn the birthright. And so in Chuck Tedrick's simplistic terms, I think of this as a sit-down covenant and this as a stand-up covenant. So in a sit-down covenant, um, I'm waiting for my inheritance from my mother, but when I get it, I'm sure I'll go to a lawyer's office and I'll sit down and just say, here's everything that your mom is leaving to you. The dog, the walker, the microwave, right? All, all, these, uh, all these wonderful things. But I'll be sitting there. I didn't do anything to deserve it. They're just gifts that my mom wants to shower down upon me. Not because I was such a good boy, because I wasn't such a good boy. They're just gifts, And you sit down and you receive an inheritance. Here's what you get. You get the land, you get the cars, you get the cattle, you get, you know, whatever the inheritance is, a billion dollars. You just sit down and you read it. It's like, wonderful. This is great. You're just sitting there. Every week when you come to the service, you're divine service, you're in a sit-down covenant. You're forgiven. You are declared righteous. You are adopted. 
You are loved. There's nothing in all of creation that can ever separate you. You are mine. You're indwelt with my Holy Spirit. I give you, I give you, I give you, I give you. You're sitting down and you're receiving that. And then there are stand-up covenants, right? In my, in my marriage, you know, my wife and I were standing there. I vowed to do X, Y, and Z, and she vowed to do X, Y, and Z. If you think about it in terms of when you take an oath of office, you know, you raise your hand and taking an oath to be a president or a Supreme Court justice, you're standing up and saying, I will do this. I will honor the Constitution. If you think about it in terms of if you have to give a testimony in the court, right? you have to stand up and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. Recognizing that if I lie, I deserve the condemnation or I deserve the punishment for those things. So there's a difference really between a sit-down covenant and a stand-up covenant. And in this one, Moses was asleep. He was a, it was a lay-down covenant, right? And in this one, it's a stand-up covenant. And we recognize that there's a fundamental difference uh, between these two without so separating them that there's not something sim- similar as well. And then we recognize throughout Scripture, Scripture tells us that this is really the promises of Zion, or Mount Zion, the, the mountain of promise, and this is Mount Sinai. And turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 12. So sometimes people think that we make too much of the differences, the discontinuities between them. And the author of Hebrews has this to say. He makes a difference between these. Hebrews chapter 12, after rehearsing over and over a whole bunch of things about the new covenant. This covenant, when Christ comes, is based on better promises. It's based on a better priesthood. It's based on a better covenant. It's based on a better blood. You know, like better, 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 better. Like everything's better about the new covenant because it's fulfilled in Christ and because it comes to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But notice what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, starting in verse 18. It says, For if you not come to what may be touched... Now he's describing this covenant in action. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Right? This is a recognizing, hey, we can't do this. We didn't do this. And recognizing the reality of the situation. It's describing the thunders and the clouds and the lightning and everything about, uh, about Mount, Mount Sinai. And it says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven." 
At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. How do we receive the kingdom? With, great, yeah, with gratefulness. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Right? It's a sit-down covenant. Are there things that we are to do as part of that covenant, as part of the new creation? Absolutely. The law which condemns us in its first use of the law is the law that guides us and directs us in its third use. Ephesians 3, 2 says that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. They're evidence that we are part of the new creation. They're not the grounding of or the basis of our relationship with God. The result of our grace, gracious relationship with God and being part of, uh, of, of Christ, being united to him in his death. And so Jesus came and didn't just skip over this and say, Rut row, that's really hard. I'm going to hopscotch over that. He fulfilled all of these terms. He's the lawgiver. This law is actually from Jesus. He's also the law fulfiller. He perfectly obeyed it in all of its exacting detail. And in his grace and in his mercy, he bore the curse for us. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them, right? One of the stipulations. And so Jesus bore the curse in his own flesh. It's not like God said, you know, it was too hard. I'm too unreasonable. I'm too picky. No, there is someone who can do it. There is someone who could perfectly obey. There is someone who could also endure the wrath for all of our sin, for all of our failure to do everything that the law, whether given in nature or given uh, in Scripture, commands us to do. And Jesus did those things perfectly for us and on our behalf. And so then we recognize that the law does show us our need. It's good, holy, and true. It shows us the character of God. But the law was never meant as a way to salvation. As if you do this then you will live. Like even here, again, this wasn't for salvation. That ship sailed with Adam. Any other way to approach the Lord is only through faith. And that faith itself is a gift. And there is something uh, just beautiful to recognize that the promises of the new covenant are that those who have been cursed are freed. Those who are sinners are saved. Those who are dead are made alive. Those who are rebels are made heirs. Those who are unrighteous are made righteous. All of it in Christ. And all of of that mosaic economy is showing that in far more richness and fullness, what it means to be holy and what it means to be pure and what it means to deserve the wrath and condemnation of God for not doing it and being cast out and being expelled and have all these things happen to you. And Jesus comes and endures that for us. And he takes it upon himself, enduring the curse, conquering sin, conquering Satan, conquering death, and then he gives us life. And his righteousness is imputed to us. 
So we live a life of gratitude. We are thankful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This kingdom could be shaken. Sinai could be shaken. Zion cannot be shaken. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are adopted. There's nothing in all of creation that can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ. You are declared righteous. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit now and forever. He doesn't come in for a little bit and say, ooh, a little bit trickier project than I thought to clean up this guy's act. I'm out of here. No. Christ fully satisfied for all of your sins. A better covenant, a better mediator, better promises, better blood, better everything in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for how you didn't leave us in our sin and misery. And I thank you that you didn't pull any punches and punches and showed us the reality of our sin and misery and what it deserves. And we thank you that you and your grace and mercy planned from all of eternity to send your own son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our law breaking, to fulfill the law perfectly on our behalf, and to help us to walk and to honor the law and to follow the law as part of the new creation in Christ as those who are conformed to his image. Father, may we never cease to wonder at your grace and mercy towards us. May we live our lives out of gratitude for the embarrassment of riches that you shower down upon us in Jesus. It is in his name and washed in his blood and clothed in his robe of righteousness and indwelt uh, by his Holy Spirit that we pray. And all of God's children said.